Well, we're going to continue on today with our study in the Gospel of John. Today we're going to look at verses 30 through 37. Let's read those verses now together, beginning in verse 30 of John chapter 6. Therefore they said to him, remember these are the people that followed him over from uh, Bethsaida on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. They followed him over to the middle of the north shore, Capernaum, and they said to Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? That's where we left off last week. Then they continue on. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Let's pray. Father, this is really a, a dynamic passage. Um, all of your word is dynamic. But Father, we really have come to love and appreciate the gospel of John and the uniqueness of his writing style, his insights. And we know that all of your word is God-breathed, comes out of your mouth through the Holy Spirit, to the authors of the Old and New Testament. We thank you for that, and we ask you to bless this time of study in your word this morning. Lord, just quicken these truths to our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, yes, we talked last week about these sign seekers, we call them, I believe. But rather than seeking after signs and wonders and miracles... All people should be seeking the one who created all things. In fact, in the book of Romans, first chapter, Paul takes up this issue of people worshiping the creation rather than the creator. We are not to seek after signs and wonders and miracles. Those will come naturally according to God's plan, his purpose, his will, as we pursue him, as we walk with him. Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We are certainly seeing a lot of suppression of truth in the times in which we're living. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the ungodly, those who suppress the truth, they are without excuse. Prime example is when Charles Darwin came on the scene and introduced his theory of evolution and the whole purpose of that 
Uh, in fact, I was just watching someone else talking about this recently. The fact that Darwin was angry at God, mad at God, because Darwin felt that God had let him down, and so the whole purpose of inventing the theory of evolution was to try to suppress the truth, get people to no longer believe in God. And because Paul says the very essence of who God is has been revealed to us through his creation. We are to seek after the one who created all things. And so the enemy's strategy is to convince everyone that there is no creator, that everything just evolved randomly. And that is the most ludicrous, irrational, illogical thing that anyone could ever come up with. Even the most rudimentary items, like the chairs you're sitting on, the podium I'm standing behind, were created by someone, were they not? And it's been said, and rightly so, the more intricate, the more um, incredible the creation, then the more incredible the creator must be, right? And God's creation is a marvel, it's amazing, it's incredible, and it speaks of an unbelievably powerful creator. These people were seeking signs. They had the creator standing right in front of them, and they're seeking signs. They go on, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And it's always funny to be reminded that the word manna means... What is it? <laughs> They'd never seen it before. It was something from heaven. But it was sweet to the taste. Just amazing uh, food that God provided for the children of Israel during their wanderings in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. He, they meant Moses. They gave the glory. They, gave, they attributed this great miracle, which lasted for 40 years, by the way, they attribute it to Moses. So basically what they're saying to Jesus here is, well, yeah, you fed us for one day. You know, the loaves and the fishes. Moses fed one to two million people for 40 years. Can you top that, Jesus? They're challenging him. And then he says in verse 32, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. So Jesus understands they're giving Moses the credit, but Jesus points out that it was God himself that provided it. And that's another problem when we go uh, seeking after signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, God is a, a miraculous God, and anytime gets, someone gets saved, that's a miracle. When someone gets healed, that's a miracle. But we are to seek him first and foremost. And that's the problem when we put a, when a we overemphasize, you know, the uh, the faith preachers, teachers, the you know the faith healers, the Oral Roberts and people like this, um, where the entire focus is on that sort of thing. A Benny Hinn, and they begin to be worshipped. They begin to get the glory, and people think that that they can never be healed unless they go see one of these guys. No, God is the one who does the healing. He works through human vessels. 
But, and I would propose to you the reason we don't see more of those kinds of miracles is because so many of the people involved in that stuff are seeking the glory for themselves. And God says he will not share his glory with anyone. That's why I said last week in my message, God is doing miracles in our lives every day. It's just that so much of the time we don't see them. And one of the reasons we don't see them is, and if you follow the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, he was very low-key. He would tell people, don't say anything to anybody, just go to the temple and give your offering. He kept it on the down-low, if you will. He didn't need anybody's praise or recognition because he knew and he knows exactly who he is. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father, Jesus says, gives you the true bread from heaven. And of course, he's speaking of himself. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he, not it, and just like some people call the Holy Spirit it, and they, they, they relegate the Holy Spirit to a lower level. No, the Holy Spirit is God. One God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. And again, oftentimes these people who get off in the wrong direction regarding signs and wonders and miracles, they treat the Holy Spirit like an it, like a substance. And they'll like throw the Holy Spirit at someone. Now, you don't throw the Holy Spirit at anybody. If anything, he'll throw you. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Oh, I jumped over this. Let's back up. No, I didn't. That's where we are. The bread of God is he, Jesus Christ, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they brought it up. They brought up the manna in the wilderness, and it was a perfect opening for Jesus to step right in and say, yes, that bread provided sustenance to the children of Israel during their wanderings, but I am the ultimate sustenance. I am the bread of life, the bread of God. The bread of God is God's sustenance through his son Jesus Christ to all who will look to him and call upon him. There's that old expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can, you know, it's been said that witnessing, sharing your faith, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. And so you can lead someone to the bread, but they have to willingly choose to partake of it. The bread of God is his sustenance to all who will look to him and call upon him. And you know, when we look at this analogy that Jesus is using here, for thousands of years, bread has been looked upon as the staple, the baseline for survival. Hence the old adage, bread is the staff of life. You ever heard that one? It's that which we lean upon to carry us through life. Now in our modern world, bread's kind of gotten a bad rap. Oh, too many carbs. <laughs> But in ancient times, those people were very grateful and very thankful to get a hold of a loaf of bread. Matthew 6, 9, and 10, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Remember, they asked him to teach them to pray. In this manner, therefore, pray, says Jesus. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what comes next? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is our daily bread. And Jesus was speaking about much more than just physical sustenance. He was encouraging us to pray as he encouraged the disciples to pray. Ask God to provide for you everything you need for this day. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, later on in the same chapter, he says, um, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. Take one day at a time. Give us this day our daily bread. And see, just like the children in, of Israel in the wilderness, they were not allowed to save up any of the manna. They had to receive it daily from God. If they tried to save it up, it, it, it got full of worms, rancid, inedible. And God wants us to seek him daily for our sustenance, not just physically. In fact, as we've talked about over and over again, and Matthew 6 is a perfect example if you read the whole chapter. The physical aspect is the least significant and the least important to God. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So the daily bread, it's, it's what we need spiritually, mentally, emotionally, as well as physically. And Jesus is telling these people that he is that source. He is that sustenance. He is the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And you say, well, the world's already alive. Well, maybe biologically speaking, yes, but spiritually the world was not already alive. The world was lost in sin and death. The manna in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of Jesus, the bread from heaven who gives life, sustenance to the world, meaning the people in the world. Again, all those who will receive him. The bread is there, it's on the table, but you have to pick it up and eat it. And that's what it means to become a follower of Christ, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to take advantage of that which God has provided. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now, do you think they all of a sudden had this great spiritual revelation? No. To them, they're still thinking in physical terms. They don't have a clue. They're thinking only in literal, physical terms, not spiritual. Wow, that bread sounds great. That sounds like better than Hawaiian sweet bread. You ever had, how many of you ever had Hawaiian sweet bread? That's pretty good stuff. Yeah, we want that. Give it to us always. And that, that was, again, their whole focus. That's why they followed Jesus. It's kind of like when there's a stray cat or a stray dog comes along and you feed them. You're stuck with them, aren't you? These people were like a bunch of stray cats and stray dogs following Jesus across the lake because he'd given them a great meal for free. And uh, we're all drawn to free meals, are we not? And so now they say, well, we want this bread all the time. And then Jesus just lays it out. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Okay, folks, let me spell it out for you, okay? It's me. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Again, what's the emphasis here? Spiritually, spiritually, spiritually. Spiritually. 
Do we still get hungry? I woke up this morning really hungry. Sometimes not so much. This morning I really felt hungry. What do you do when you're hungry? You eat. We will, even as believers, no matter how great our walk with God might be, no matter how much time we spend in His Word, in prayer, in fellowship, physically we're still going to get hungry about three times a day, right? Or more. (laughs) One of my big downfalls is the late night snack. Would that we take a late night spiritual snack, right? So Jesus is not saying, if you receive me, you'll never have physical hunger again. You'll never have spiritual thirst. He's speaking about spiritually, he who comes to me shall never hunger. Believe it or not, all the destructive carnal pursuits of the flesh, drugs, alcohol, Illicit sex, greed, the pursuit of power, all these destructive carnal pursuits of the flesh are actually the result of spiritual hunger. That's why none of these things can ever satisfy. Have you ever wondered why somebody who seems like they're set for life, they're a millionaire, they're, they've got lots of money, a billionaire, and they, they go on pursuing the, the uh, gaining of more wealth, have you ever thought, why did, it's like some of these actors and actresses, singers, rock stars, so forth, they're already set for life, but they just keep pursuing more and more and more and more. Why is that? Because at the root of it, there's a spiritual hunger that the things of the flesh can never satisfy. It reminds me of that song that we sing, Hungry, I Come to You. For I know you satisfy. Just like we've been talking about, we need to seek not the creation, but the creator, not the miracle signs and wonders, but the one who creates those miracles and signs and wonders. We need to seek him who satisfies. The things of this world will never satisfy. If they did, we'd have a lot more satisfied people than we do. Because one of the distinctions of America has been uh, the prosperity of what we call the middle class. That was something very unique to America. Before in other countries, other kingdoms, you had the very wealthy and the very poor. And that's also a distinction of communist dictatorships. This whole idea, oh yeah, everybody is equal, everybody gets the same, you know, communism, Marxism, not really. It's just the communist dictators replace the czars and the kings, and they become the wealthy elite, and everybody else is dirt poor. In America, we were actually able, one nation under God, with God's help, to create this massive middle class that had a Uh, a comfort level, uh, a lifestyle that no one in the world had ever experienced before. But even then, you notice that we're never satisfied, right? Well, I got a boat, but now I need a motorhome, and now I I need a couple of jet skis, and it just goes on and on and on, right? 
Because the things of this world, the things of the flesh, will never satisfy the spiritual hunger in your heart. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on. So we have the analogy of the bread. And now he says, he who believes in me shall never thirst. The two driving forces behind human survival are what? Hunger and thirst. We have those senses, those reflexes of hunger and thirst so that we don't die. If we don't eat and we don't drink, we will die because our body needs these things. And we've talked before about Jesus and his uh, 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And it tells us at the end of that time that he hungered. After a certain period of time, at first when you're fasting, it's really hard. But once you get past a certain point, you no longer feel hungry. But if you go long enough in that condition, in that state, at whatever point, it might be a different time frame for each person. Everybody's physical makeup is different. But when you go get past that stage where you feel no hunger and you begin to hunger again, at that point, if you don't eat, you will die. And sadly, I think there are a lot of people who are believers, who are identify as believers, and yet, in a sense, they are fasting spiritually because they spend no time in the Word of God. They spend no time in prayer. They spend no time in Christian fellowship. And it's like fasting spiritually. And if you go long enough and you don't eat, you will die spiritually. People think, well, I don't need to go to church to be saved. That's true. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. That's an old one. However, however, why do we gather like this? We gather to be fed spiritually, right? And that's the way God set it up. Well, can I eat on my own? Yeah. Now, I don't know, but I prefer eating out. <laughs> I love to eat out. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a restaurant food junkie. And this is kind of like, you know, yeah, you can eat at home. You can make your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, whatever. But then you come to church and you are looking for, hoping for a good meal, right? That's why we gather, to worship, to fellowship, to feed upon God's Word. The two driving forces behind human survival are hunger and thirst. And Jesus uses these basic human needs for survival and equates them with spiritual slash eternal survival. The quenching of our spiritual hunger and thirst by feeding upon the Word of God is essential for our spiritual eternal survival. Does that make sense? You following me here? And that, folks, right there will explain to you why perhaps a number of people that you have known or been in relationship with that professed to be believers in Jesus Christ are no longer walking with Him because they didn't take hold of these two vital elements 
the living water, and the bread of God. Salvation, being born again, that's exactly what it is. You're born again, right? We call new believers baby Christians or babes in Christ. That's not a slam. It's just the truth. You know, if you got saved yesterday, you were born yesterday. You're a new baby Christian. Now, what do you do with a baby? Do you feed it and clothe it and bathe it and take care of it, nurture it, or do you just lay it on the crib and expect it to fend for itself? If you do that, the baby will die, right? And yet some people put so much emphasis on evangelism, which we need to evangelize, we need to share the gospel, we need to lead people to Christ, but then they get left there in the bassinet. And they don't get fed, and they don't get nurtured, and they don't grow, and they die. And that's our responsibility, and that's why the enemy is always trying to convince people, you don't need to go to church. You know, you're saved, you're going to heaven, that's all you really need. No, that's just the beginning. And there's a lot of scriptures about that as well that we don't have time to go into. And folks, we're talking here about spiritual, eternal survival, but the good news is in Christ, it's not just survival, all right? It's abundance. It's not just the bare minimum. It's not just survival. Some people, as believers, go through life acting like that. Well, I'm just trying to hang in there till Jesus comes back. It's been a rough ride. John 10.10, 10, you, you hear me quote this verse all the time. The thief, Satan, comes not except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I, Jesus says, have come that you may have life. And again, he's speaking of spiritual life. If you're born into this world, you are alive but you're not spiritually alive until Jesus comes to live inside of you. That they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I believe it's the NIV says, to the full. If you are a believer, and I trust the majority here today are, and you're not experiencing that abundant life, that fullness of life in Christ, it probably means that you are trying to fill that spiritual void and quench that spiritual hunger and thirst with the things of this world. You follow me? Because if you're truly pursuing God, Jesus Christ, your life with Him, your walk with Him, the things of the Spirit, the things of God's eternal kingdom, you will experience that abundant life. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus and to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice, Paul says that God, through Jesus Christ, 
is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You've heard me say before, God not only answers our prayers, sometimes he answers our thoughts before we can even pray them. Above all that we can ask or think. So again, if you're not experiencing that, if you are feeling disappointed, God has let me down. He hasn't done what I thought he would do or what I hoped he would do, what I wanted him to do. That doesn't jive with who he says he is. He says he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. So, if you're not experiencing that, that exceedingly abundant life, chances are you're asking and thinking for the wrong things. Okay? Is this too brutally honest for you all? I hope not, because it's true. 1 Corinthians 2.9 But as it is written, again the Apostle Paul, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The things that God has in store for us, and again, my understanding is that this has to do with his eternal kingdom. It's not speaking of the temporary things of this life, but what God has in store for us in eternity. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who what? Love him. I told you earlier, we have to reach out. He, the bread is on the table. You have to reach out and take the bread and be fed with the bread of life, Jesus Christ. So what God is promising us, what Jesus is promising us, when he says, you know, you'll never thirst again, you'll never hunger again, he's speaking spiritually. And he's telling us that to embrace him, to receive him, to accept him, to walk with him, to live with him, to feed upon him as the bread of life. And how do we do that? Through his word, first and foremost. Allow his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to work in us, to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Then we will not just be in survival mode, folks. I think that's a sad thing. Maybe that's why more people don't, uh, particularly in the Western world, in our culture, why more people don't embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, because they see all these believers who seem to be going through life in survival mode. But they're already living in survival mode out there in the world. What, what is the draw? What is the appeal to go from one survival mode to another? They need to see that we're walking in abundance. And it's not, oh, Marilyn Hickey. I don't know if you remember her. She used to be on TV, Denver, Colorado, faith teacher. You, you, this is a phone, but I'm going to pretend it's a wallet. Because she would take, she'd say, you look at that wallet. And you, oh, you. You big fat wallet, you're so full of money. <laughs> I'm serious. Do you remember that, Ryan? I see you nodding. Yeah? Yeah. All these faith teachers and preachers. Reverend Ike. You can have your pie of the sky right now with ice cream on top. 
Pretty good, huh? Uh-huh. And so, if you're someone who's been subjected to that kind of false teaching and preaching, and yet you're not prospering, your bank account's not full, your wallet's not full, you know, you've got health issues, you're not walking in perfect health because you don't have enough faith. You're going to go through life as a believer living in survival mode and people are going to see you and say, well, why should I want that? That's not offering me anything. But if you can walk in the abundant life that Christ has promised you, which is a fullness of joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost, and it doesn't matter whether your bank account's bone dry or you've got more money than Bill Gates. Chances are, if you've got more money than Bill Gates, you're just as bad, if not worse, than he is. Just saying. See, all the things that we think will make us happy and prosperous, well, if you look at the people that have those things, what did I say earlier? That's never enough. They always need more and more. They want more and more. And they've been married three, four, five, six times. Maybe killed a couple spouses along the way. There's some of that that goes on. Anyway. We go on in verse 36. We've got two verses left. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I'm standing right in front of you. You're looking for miracles? I'm the miracle. I'm the bread of life. They'd seen him perform the miracle of the loaves and fishes, but for them that was not enough. Do you know anybody like that? Here's a question everyone should ask themselves. What more does God have to do to gain your belief in Him? Has He not done enough already? What more does He have to do? Because if you're like these people, it'll never be enough. And then He goes on, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Notice something, folks. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It is God the Father, through His Holy Spirit, who brings human beings to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not, a, is not an insignificant thing. I've, I've told you before, John 6, No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So I've told you many times when I pray for loved ones, friends, family, whoever in my circle, my sphere of influence, if you will, that is not walking with God, is not a believer, I pray for them, Father, give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. Because neither one comes natural to us as human beings. It has to be gifted to us by God, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. But I also pray this. Actually, every day I pray this for a number of people. Father, please draw whoever it is, Jim, Bill, Bob, Susie, Jane, please draw them to Jesus by your Holy Spirit. I pray that to the Father. Father, please draw them to Jesus by your Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. 
No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he says right here in John 6, 37, where we're studying today, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Again, do I understand all the amazing, incredible spiritual dynamics of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No. But all I do know is what the Bible says. And the Bible says the Father gives us to Jesus. The Father, by His Holy Spirit, draws us to Jesus, and therefore it's altogether appropriate to pray for someone in that manner. But here we go again. We talked about this a little bit last week, the predestination thing. Matthew 22, 8. This is the king who sent out invitations to the wedding, and this would be the wedding of Jesus and his bride, the church. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. The Jewish people who rejected Christ when he came the first time. They were the first ones to be invited because they're God's chosen people. But they were not worthy because they rejected Christ. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. People of every ethnicity, every race, every kindred, every tongue, every tribe. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? The Bible tells us we are clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness. We have no righteousness, but Christ graciously clothes us with his robes of righteousness. So when God looks at you and I as believers, if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you may still have full recognition and understanding that you're a vile, wretched sinner saved by grace. But when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Praise God. Amen. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. <laughs> then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called... They sent the message out to everywhere, right? The highways and the byways. The Gentile nations. The gospel went out to the Gentile nations because the Jews rejected Christ officially. Not every Jew, but officially the rulers, the leaders of Israel rejected Jesus and made sure that he was crucified. So now, and that's my wife always says, I'm encouraged by the most negative things. Well, you know what? Their rejection resulted in our salvation. Praise God. But then this guy, they took him out. He wasn't clothed in the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. For many are called, but few are chosen. Folks, the call goes out to everyone. God would not be a fair, just, and righteous God if he said, I'm not calling you. Sorry, get out of here. That's kind of what Calvinism teaches. We talked about it last week. My wife's beginning a study on grace with her women's Bible study. So we've been having conversations about this. That's kind of what Calvinism says. Sorry, you're not called. See you later. The Bible says he calls everyone, but few are chosen. What is the basis of that choosing? It's those who choose him. He says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. 
The man who was cast out had no wedding garment. He had not chosen Christ. He was not clothed with Jesus' robes of righteousness. The one who comes to Christ is the one who responds to the call of God. God is the initiator. We are the respondents. I've talked about this many times as well. He reached out to us through his son Jesus Christ. The ball is in our court. He's the initiator. We are the respondents. 1 John 4.19 We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. He's the initiator. We're the respondents. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek us, to save us, to reach out to us, but now we have to come to him. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, it's sad that some people are under the mistaken belief that they have to get their act together and clean their life up before they can come to God. If you could do that, you wouldn't have needed him in the first place. Come just as you are, and he will get your act together. He will clean up your life. He will make things right. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he tells us that all those who come to him, he says, I will by no means cast out. This is Jesus' promise to all who come to him. He will never cast us away. He will never forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Wonderful, glorious promises, but it's all predicated upon us coming to him, us recognizing him and acknowledging him as the very source, not of only of our survival, but of our abundance, the bread of life, the living water. When I'm going to get into some controversial territory now. We've got about 10 minutes left. I mentioned predestination. I think I've tried to explain to you what I understand it to be, that God chooses those who choose him. And he knows all things. He knew before the foundations of the world who would choose him and who wouldn't. No one was excluded except those who excluded themselves. But it begs the question, even though he will by no means cast us out, he will never leave us or forsake us, can we turn away from him? There's a guy, I learned about him at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. They have a whole display about him because obviously the Creation Museum teaches against evolution. And this guy, Charles Bradley Templeton, 1915 to 2001, was a Canadian media figure and a former Christian evangelist. Known in the 1940s and 1950s as a leading evangelist, he became an agnostic and later embraced atheism after struggling with doubt. Templeton was a close friend of and shared billing with fellow evangelist Billy Graham. 
They were close friends with whom he co-founded along with Tory Johnson, Youth for Christ International. How many of you have heard of Youth for Christ? It's still going today. This guy founded it with Billy Graham. After he quit his first job, which I believe was something to do with TV, radio, Templeton became a mass evangelist. From 1936 to 1938, he toured the U.S. and preached in 44 states. He was a top evangelist, internationally renowned. In 1941, Templeton started the Nazarene Avenue Road Church as its preacher, renting a building that formerly housed a Presbyterian church. In 1955, he became the Presbyterian Church in the United States Secretary of Evangelism. But here's where it gets sticky. Wanting to learn more about Christianity, Templeton attended Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1940s. Very liberal. Later receiving an honorary doctorate from Lafayette College. Now Ken Ham and his display in the Creation Museum lays out with some detail that his fall from grace, Charles Bradley Templeton, was the result of his embracing the theory of evolution. He went to a liberal theological seminary where they taught evolution, and it twisted his mind and he turned away from God. Now the Calvinists would say, in spite of the fact that this guy had a ministry that went for at least 20 years, if not more, that he helped found Youth for Christ and started this church, did all this stuff, ultimately turned away from God, became an atheist, the Calvinists would tell you that he was never truly a Christian. I, I doubt that anyone who was one of his contemporaries would have agreed with that. The Arminianists would tell you, yeah, he really was a Christian, but now he's not. He lost his salvation. How did he lose it? Jesus says, I will by no means cast you out. I will never leave you or forsake you. Did Jesus forsake Charles Bradley Templeton? Did he forsake Jesus? Yes, he did. Now, ultimately, only God truly knows the condition of each person's heart, right? Thankfully, our salvation does not rest upon what somebody else thinks about us. But it does rest upon what God thinks about us. God knows this inside and out. Ultimately, he's the only one who truly knows. But we can be certain. One thing we can be certain of, Jesus will never turn us away. He will never leave us or forsake us. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So even if someone were to try to mislead you, and obviously Charles Bradley Templeton was led astray, misled, deceived, but you still have a choice. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. But it is possible, it, and the question is, is it possible for someone to jump out, crawl out, climb out of the Father's hand? And I would propose to you that historical evidence seems to suggest that yes, it's possible. Do you know or have you known anyone like this? We kind of mentioned this earlier. Can you think of someone 
that you could have sworn up and down one side and the other was a true believer and now they don't want anything to do with God? Here's the point, folks. I've quoted it so many times. It's like I'm blue in the face. Pastor Chuck Smith, my mentor, used to say, we are eternally secure in Christ. I would put it this way. Stick with him. He'll stick with you. Am I trying to put a little fear in your heart? Maybe. I don't know. We sh the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's nothing wrong with having a healthy fear of God. Not that he will ever cast you out. Not that he will ever turn you away. But a healthy fear that I better watch my P's and Q's lest I fall away. It has nothing to do with God's ability to keep you in his love. It has everything to do with you staying in line with him and not being led astray to the left or to the right or behind. And if you don't think the enemy is trying to do that day and night, then you're asleep because he is. 2 Chronicles 15.1 The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Matthew 10, 32 and 33, and we'll close with this. Therefore, Jesus says, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So it's important tonight not to hide your lamp under a bushel, not to be afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to tell people that you believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only Son of the living God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day. You can do it right now. Do you confess Jesus before men? Raise your hand. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, well, I believed in my heart, but I just didn't want anybody to know. I don't think that works. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, let's stand. My final comment this morning before we go to the Lord in prayer do not deny him, listen to me, do not deny him and you will be much more than fine. You will not just be in survival mode, you will be living the abundant life that Jesus promised you. Okay, let's bow our heads. If you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. I see him all across the room. Let's go before the Lord. Father, first of all, we do thank you for your word, the truth of your word, the wisdom and guidance that we receive from your word. And Lord, we recognize our salvation does not rest upon us, upon our performance, upon our good works. But Lord, we are required, first of all, to come to you, to put our faith in you, to trust in you, to believe in you. And even that, the ability to do that comes not from us, but from you. But Lord, because you've created us as free moral agents, you've given us a free will, 
And every day we have choices to make. Will we live that day for you or will we live it for ourselves? Will we pursue the things of this world or will we pursue the eternal things that truly bring us fulfillment, that bring us joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost? Lord, we kind of wish we didn't have to choose. We wish you would just wave a magic wand over us and make us the people that you want us to be. But we know it doesn't work like that. Lord, you want us to love you because we've choosing, we choose to love you. You want us to obey you because we choose to obey you. And yet we recognize the only way we can do that is with your help. So we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us. Renew a right spirit within us. Transform us, Father, by the renewing of our minds. We ask in Jesus' name. Lord, we lift up those with health issues. We pray for healing to be poured out upon them today. Whether it's someone in this room or someone that we're praying on behalf of, we, we humbly beseech you for physical healing, for mental and emotional healing, Father, for deliverance from anxiety and depression and fear and worry and doubt and all those things. We pray for those with broken or damaged relationships for marriages that need to be healed. Lord, that you would bind the enemy as he comes to attack our marriages that you would bring both spouses to a place of humility and brokenness and repentance, that we could each take responsible for our own actions, our own wrongs, that there could be healing and restoration in these marriages and friendships that have been damaged because we know the enemy comes but to steal, to kill, to destroy, to divide. But we ask that you would bring us back together in reconciliation and restoration and love. And finally, we do pray for economic issues, Lord, that you would provide for your people. Again, we've talked about the emptiness of the pursuit of the things of this world, but we do need food, we need shelter, we need clothing. We, don't, we need less than we think we do. But we ask that, you would, that no one would go without, that you would pour out your spirit, your blessings, your provision upon those here today that might be struggling, and you'd help us to work together as the body of Christ to take care of one another and we know that will all be for your glory. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. We ask you to receive now our final offering of praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.